Today's episode of No Till Flowers is brought to you by Growing for Market magazine. Want to know the top 10 most profitable flowers to grow on a limited acreage? How to manage a greenhouse for cut flowers? Or how to structure a profitable farm business? Learn all of that and more by subscribing to Growing for Market magazine. Founded by the flower farmer author Lynn Bazinski, Growing for Market is celebrating 30 years of helping local food and flower growers succeed with articles written by industry leaders like Elliot Coleman, Aaron Benzikane, and Jean-Martin Fortier. By farmers, for farmers. Plus, subscriptions start at only $30 per year. Whether you do farmer's markets, local wholesaling, a CSA, or dream of starting a farm, check them out today at growingformarket.com. Request a free sample print or digital copy from the website, and podcast listeners can get a new subscriber discount of 25% off when using the code SOIL when subscribing at growingformarket.com. Again, that code is SOIL. And I want to throw in just a personal off-script plug here to say how much I value my own subscription to Growing for Market. Editor Andrew and his team put together a fantastic collection of articles for each issue. There's always flower-related content, but to be honest, I find the stories about employee management and small farm equipment and so many other topics just as valuable. So that's a big two thumbs up for me here. Today's show is also brought to you by Farmer's Friend. It's no secret that almost everything grows better in a tunnel. Bring the benefits of greenhouse production to your veggie or flower farm in an affordable and easy-to-assemble package from Farmer's Friend Caterpillar Tunnel Kits. Their quick-to-build and move come in a variety of styles and sizes and include everything you need to make installation a breeze. Can attest to this, I own two of these tunnels myself, and they are super easy to put up and take down as needed. Plus, if you order two or more tunnels of any size, you'll get free shipping on your entire order. Also, be sure to check out Farmer's Friends' growing selection of small farm tools and supplies like the pyro weeder, silage tarps, landscape fabric, row covers, shade cloth, irrigation kits, and more. If you are ready to increase efficiency on your farm and earn higher profits with less work, visit FarmersFriend.com today. Put in your earbuds, pour a cup of tea, or put on your work gloves. It's time for another episode of the No-Till Flowers podcast. As always, I'm your nerdy host, Jenny Love of Love and Fresh Flowers. I created this podcast to drill into the details of truly natural farming, be it no-till or biostimulants or whatever, as it relates to flower farming. I felt like there was a void in the industry for this kind of information. And since I'm in my third season of no-till here on my farm and I still have lots of questions, I thought this podcast would be a great way for me to ask those questions and hopefully get some good answers from our guests. So let's get started. I have a lovely chat on today's episode with Brenda and Andrew from Good Hope Blooms. Since starting in 2015, this small flower farm in New South Wales, Australia has seen a lot of challenges. I wanted to get Brenda and Andrew's take on what it's like to farm through a multi-year drought that blew away all of their topsoil as well as the anxiety and heavy smoke from raging wildfires. We get pretty philosophical along the way about how the energies of the world are entwined and how we need to balance our ambitions as farmers with the reality checks of our lives and our climate. So this is not a super nitty gritty details no-till episode, and I like it. We do talk about seed starting, using hay mulch, and biodynamic preparations for use on flowers, 
So there's still plenty here if you're just a farming nerd. And also some sales and marketing tips that have sprung from Good Hope Bloom's new farm gate stall, which Brenda says she wishes they had started years ago. Be sure to check out Good Hope Blooms on Instagram. And while you're there, look for the adorable videos of Eric the Enchinda taking a bath. We talk about that too in this episode. So now that I've got your curiosity peaked, let's go. chatting with Brenda and Andrew of Good Hope Blooms in Australia today. It kind of blows my mind that here I am sitting in Philadelphia, literally on the other side of the globe from you guys. And it's magic that our technology today can let a farmer so far away to talk to other farmers, compare notes, and learn so much from each other. So welcome, Brenda and Andrew. This is awesome. Oh, hi, Jenny. Hi, Jenny, and thank you so much. It's just lovely to be invited. Um, yeah, and congratulations on the new podcast. We love it. Oh, thank you. It's been so much fun, and I love that it means that I get to um, talk to a lot of growers all over the place and just see what everybody else is doing. It's a really fun project for me, too. I learned so much. So thank you guys for giving me your time in the middle of the summer. <laughs> it's winter here, but for you guys, it's summer. And I just want to acknowledge that and say how grateful I am that you're spending time with me when you probably have a lot of flowers to cut or some weeds to pull. <laughs> oh, yeah. no, look, you're welcome and happy to be doing this instead of pulling weeds anytime. Yeah. <laughs> Let's start with you guys introducing yourselves in terms of what your farm, is, where you are, um, how big the farm is, how long have you been doing this, and just a little bit more detail about Good Hope Blooms. Okay. Um, so um, we're located in a place called Good Hope. Um, and so Good Hope is in the state of New South Wales, which is in the southeast corner of mainland Australia. Um, so we're on 20 acres here and we're in a very rural area. Um, so Good Hope is in the Yass Valley and um, that's, um, that's on the traditional lands of the, the Ngunnawal people here. Um, and like if you look out our windows here, um, it's a very rural area. We've got lots of large sheep and cattle grazing properties around us. Some of them are thousands of acres. Um, and we're not traditionally here, like there's not a lot of um, local commercial flower or veggie growing farms. It's mostly just sheep and cattle and, and there are some, some vineyards as well. So we're a 45 minute drive from Canberra, which is our nation's capital. And then we're about um, three hours from Sydney or seven hours from Melbourne. Um, and we've got a little town nearby called Yes, which is about seven minutes away for us. And they've got a population of about 6,000. So that's sort of our nearest largest population. Nice. And how big of a space are you growing on? Uh, maybe, but I'll make that a two-part question. How 
much land do you have in total? And then how much have you decided to get dedicate towards flowers? Okay, so our, our total property is 20 acres. Um, oh, okay, so it's that big. <laughs> um, so our, our, yeah, no, no, not big at all. But um, our flower farming area is only quite small. We're only about half an acre that's under flowers. Um, and within that half acre, we've got um, about 45 beds um, and they're permanent beds. And this is going to get to the tricky part where we've got to do that converting metres to feet. But <laughs> <laughs> It's okay. You could just say metres and we'll figure it out later. <laughs> I've got it written down because it's always a, a, a hassle for us Aussies here when we're listening to these American podcasts where you're talking in feet and we've got to try and work it out. So anyway, our beds, um, each bed is roughly um, 20 metres or about 65 foot, I think, long by about... Um, 90 centimetres or 35 inches wide. Um, and we've got, um, so it's roughly two thirds annuals and one third perennials. And we grow everything out in the open field. Um, we don't have any grow tunnels or anything like that. Um, but we can get pretty frosty here in, in winter. Um, and we get, we have like a short spring and then we end up in a really hot, dry summer and autumn. So we'll get lots of heat waves and we get um, lots and lots of wind here. Um, well, not so much us personally, but the farm does. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, yeah. And, and we're currently in the process of um, sort of... Um, shrinking our number of beds in flower production just because um, sort of of um, the health situation and, and so we're making some, some changes to what and how we do things. Nice. We'll talk about that in a minute because I definitely want to dive into that. But first I want to ask you, why did you guys decide to grow flowers in the first place? What drew you to flowers instead of veg or a sheep farm or something else <laughs> that was more typical in your area? Yeah, look, I, it, it is funny because when we first moved here, like I would have sworn, you know, that we were going to do something with horses because I've always been horse crazy. Um, but um, yeah, it ended up being flowers. <laughs> but um, I, but anyway, I think the horse stuff has has actually helped me with the the flower farming because because of the horses, I sort of developed an interest in soil and farming, and I got into um, there's a a, a lady here in Australia well she's no longer with us now but her name's Pat Colby and she wrote books on natural farming and horse care and and um, she was big on making these correlations between soil health and animal health and she was into sort of like um, you know she could really read the land and and intuit things from the land so she'd look at a paddock and if you had a weed infestation say cape weed um, she would say, well, you've got a calcium and magnesium, you know, problem in your soil and, and stuff. And so she was big on soil testing 
And um, we still use her sort of soil testing recommendations now in our flower farming. Oh, wow. And she wrote books, you said? Were there books by Pat Colby? Yeah, yeah. She, she was a real pioneer for, for this and quite some time ago, I guess back in the 1960s she, to 80s or something yeah. like that. Okay, um, okay. And, and so um, treating livestock a lot of her work was around livestock and and treating livestock issues um with um mineral supplements supplements and um you know making mineral licks and things so that the 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 cattle and sheep and horses um could supply work out what they needed as well and self-dose and things like that she um she she was a real pioneer in that area Oh wow! So, do you think some of her books would apply well to a, to a flower farming or vegetable farming, just in terms of reading the land, that kind of stuff? Um, well, I we yeah we found that you know, and like I said, you know, about the weed infestation stuff, we get lots of cape weed here, and we've got that um, problem in our soil of you know that calcium magnesium ratios sort of out of whack, and so you know then we end up with really tight soils because of of that um you know so we don't get good water infiltration and and things like that so yeah and she had a particular soil lab that she recommended and that's still the soil lab we use today and we've been following you know their recommendations each autumn when we do our soil testing and you know our soil is just getting really close to a really good spot for us now so you know I, I do think <laughs> her stuff has worked for us yeah I think especially if uh if you are growing flowers but you know you have livestock as well then you, you know her books would certainly interest you in terms of the yeah. adaption of all those things not not only just to to where you're growing your flowers but to your livestock that you, you might have as well, your horses or your handful of sheep, those sorts of things that, that we often find that we, we and chickens and all sorts of things. Yeah. She, uh, you know, she was. Yeah, but, yeah, she was definitely more livestock-focused than. Okay, okay. Than horticulture. Yeah, but sometimes I feel like there's so much to be learned by sort of cross um that's yeah. what I mean. You know, kind of like cross-training as a farm athlete. So, to see, you know, like you cross-train if you're an athlete, you should also cross-train as a farmer and try to look to other areas um, and not just stay too focused on, on like, for instance, I, I was very focused on flower farming when I was a newer flower farmer. And I, I very rarely, you know, looked to other sections of the industry of farming. Um, and it wasn't until I branched out a little bit more and started reading vegetable books and, and other books that I started realizing, oh my gosh, all these people have already figured out <laughs> so much. <laughs> I, here I am trying to invent something that's been around for decades. So yeah, I, I think there's a lot to be learned <laughs> beyond just flower farming books. <laughs> it's really bizarre. I use the horse stuff um, a lot in the flower farming and and it's interesting because, you know, through my horse stuff, I was always taught, you know, think like a horse. And I, and I heard you say it in one of your podcasts just the other day, think like a flower. And <laughs> I, I think, oh, you've got to think like a flower. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll all get there eventually. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll uh, 
um, have a brain meld with flowers <laughs> somehow. So, so her main book was um, called Natural Farming, and um, but I'm, I'm just looking it up now. But she's got a, a bunch on goat care and sheep care and cattle, horse and and pets. Um, okay. But yeah, the natural farming one is the one that uh, does a lot with going through all the soil stuff and. Cool. I'll put, I'll put a link to that in our show notes so listeners can just grab that real fast. I thank you guys for uh, bringing yet another fantastic um, book to my attention. I always love getting a few more books on my shelves. <laughs> so let's talk a bit about um, you, what have been your primary sales outlet for your flowers in the past. And I know you told me um, already that you've started a new flower stall. So let's let's go into selling flowers a little bit. Well, I think we've had a crack at just about everything. Um, so, um, I've done florists. Um, so, you know, I had a, a regular bunch of florists that, that ordered regularly off me. Um, we have done farmers markets. We haven't done a lot of those, but we, we did do them. We were doing subscriptions, you know, so delivering flowers. Um, we did supermarket and cafe style bunches we also did um do-it-yourself buckets for you know like weddings and events and then i also have been doing custom bouquets delivered um directly to people's door and um i i'm terrified of weddings so i've I've done just a handful of tiny weddings just for friends. I, I haven't been brave enough <laughs> to step beyond beyond that. Um, but, you know, a lot of those sales outlets were all happening at the same time. So, um, you know, it was, it was pretty hectic sometimes. Um, and so now, yeah, we've just sort of, like in the last month or so, we've just cut right back. And so now we're just doing um, sales from our farm gate store here on the farm. And had you done that previously at all? Or that's a brand new introduction that you started just a few months ago? This That is totally brand new. We, you know, and, and, you know, I sort of said to Andrew, like, we can't believe you know, we didn't expect the farm gate sale to be as successful as it has been. And, you know, I say to Andrew all the time, you know, um, I wish we'd done it right from the start, but <laughs> I don't think, I really don't think it would have been the success that it is if we'd started with that, because I think doing all those other outlets has really got our name out there and, and built our profile and, like I said, we're in a pretty remote place here, so um, you know, I don't, I don't think it would have been <laughs> a success without all that build up beforehand. Oh, that's that, interesting. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Andrew. Oh, with that profile um, that Brenda's built through Instagram and, and Facebook, you now the we get people that travel from Canberra, which is a you know an hour's drive they'll drive out to come to the farm stall to pick up flowers. Um, it always surprises us that people <laughs> drive that far to, to come, not even knowing that they might even be able to get what they were after because um, it, it has been a bit hectic sometimes with um, people arriving all at once to, to, to buy things. So, 
do you let them do a farm tour while they're there to make it sort of worth the trip or they come just to buy the flowers and they have to turn around and go yeah uh, that yeah we haven't we haven't worked up to farm tours yet so yeah it's just just the farm gate stall for now um so yeah. what what lessons have you learned from this process so since you're so new and fresh to um to the farm gate sales which seem to be really picking up steam in general. There's so many small farms I know now that have just started this sales outlet. And it's something I have thought about from time to time myself, since I'm located in such a large city and it would be so easy in many ways. But then I worry about things like, how do I gauge how much should I put out? You know, do I have to put um, like a, a cooler out in a, in a farm stall? Do I worry about where people are gonna park? Do I have to worry about, um people tromping through my fields <laughs> you know all of these it seems like a bit of an unknown even though it certainly has been working um for a lot of people so tell me some of the lessons you've learned along the way as you've started this and what things will you change as it goes on just in terms of quantity that is a really tricky thing and i don't have a magic formula for that so basically what we do is we're just putting whatever we can fit <laughs> in the store. Um, and then you know we're just restocking through the day um, you know so some days we do really well and we're down there restocking a lot and you know other days you know it's not so flash and you don't do as well but um, and um, we do get so this is our first summer doing it and we do get quite hot here um, we have been lucky so far this season so we were in drought sort of 2017 to 2019 but 2020 um, you know we've had um, some excellent rain thank goodness um, but it's also been much cooler so we thankfully haven't had to deal with um, you know the real stinking hot days but um, what we do do is we start our stall pretty early in the morning and try and finish up in the middle of the day so that we're avoiding the worst of the heat. Um, and I've still got to sort out what we are going to do um, when it does get hot. But part of the what we're doing too is we've um, started doing dried flowers. So they've been doing well. And, and you know, so the dried flowers are really something good and handy to have on those hot days in the store. Yeah, and I think knowing, knowing that it's it's so popular and that it's working so well that uh, we'll probably establish um, some shade trees and some quick-growing shade trees and uh, windbreak trees just behind where the store is so that, uh, you know, it'll quickly develop into a, a cooler area than... Um, what it is at the moment, which is a little bit exposed. Um, we sort of designed it around thinking that our prevailing winds come from the west and northwest and our gate entry faces southeast, which is like perfect for mm. uh, protection from that. But pretty much since we started every Saturday or Sunday, uh, we've had southeasterly winds blowing straight into the, <laughs> <laughs> the no. <laughs> Fortunately, those, those winds are, are cooler winds, so they're uh, 
we're, we're a couple of hours from the coast, but it, it's surprising the cooling effect we get from those breezes. So, so that's okay. So um, um, we've, we've sort of lived with that. That hasn't been a problem yet. Um, and how are you? How are you guys handling um, actual transactions in the farm stall? Is it um, a cash box or is it a uh, you know like some sort of electronic payment thing? What What's your system for that? Okay. Um, well, we do have a little cash box, but um, we we also offer online payment. So it's it's all pretty much self serve. Like I mean, we're ducking down there all the time, and you know we're chatting to customers and stuff, but. But for the most part, it's self-serve. Um, so um, we've got um, a QR code displayed down there on the stall, so people can just pull out their phone and and scan that QR code and go online and pay. Um, and we also have just some little paper slips with all that QR code and website details printed on it, so that people can take that away with them because sometimes, you know, out here the phone reception can be a bit dodgy. So, <laughs> you know, they can, if they're having trouble, well, they can just, you know, do it when they get home, take that slip. And, and also, you know, sometimes it gets a bit congested with people down there at the stall. So it's easier if they can just, you know, take that slip and fix it up later. Um, but, um, and, oh, well, the other thing we've had to do the um, the password we we had to end up password protecting stuff because some um, people would get online the night before the stall and purchase like pre-purchase stuff but that's not how we wanted it or intended it to be because we wanted it to sort of um, run itself. Um, but yeah, we, we were getting transactions appearing seventy five dollars uh, and it's like. <laughs> What? <laughs> <laughs> so, then, you know, you walk the night before ringing people saying, well, what do you actually want? And, and then, you know, and then people are coming, you know, as soon as the stall opens um, and you're having to tell them, well, actually, it's all being sold. <laughs> and, oh, my gosh, yeah. And, um, and you know, um, so it got really awkward. So we had to password protect the website. Yeah, so so the, the, you, the, the password's on the on the actual stall, so you gotcha. You, okay, you, you click on the QR code, and it takes you just to the our shop on the, our web page, and that particular place that it takes you to, you just got to put the password in, and then um, you fill out for however much your purchase adds up to, and um, yeah, and it's just the normal payment process through PayPal or credit card that way. Yeah, um, and because. I mean, this is one thing from COVID that just about every single person now has a QR code reader on their phone. Mm. So, um, so no one's blinked an eye at, at, at doing that. And then a lot of our regular customers that were buying from us just before that were buying online, getting bunches delivered, delivered um, they're already in our system. So they, they just know, they just go to the website and... Um, and plug their, you know, plug it in and, and, and make that payment. So um, people have been pretty good with that. It's worked, yeah. it's worked you know, without having any kind of dedicated iPad or something down there that you right. know, people are, you know, um, trying to sort their way through. They're doing it on their own phone using a system that they're, that they're used to. And 
yeah, that's mm. that's that's worked really well. Yeah, and nice. most people. Most people pay online. We do get a little bit of cash, but it's mostly online, and that's been good because you don't have those security concerns. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and because we go down and restock the flowers throughout the day. You know, each time we go down, we'll clear out the the cash box so that you know, if someone does decide they want to help themselves to it. <laughs> Limiting, <laughs> limiting what they're going to get. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Well, and we, we just haven't had any trouble at all, touch wood. Yeah. yeah. And if you see, because the, the transactions come through quite quickly and so, you know, they pop up on your phone and so you go, oh, just, you know, three or four things just gone, um, you know, bigger sales. So, you know, you need to run down and put some more stuff in the store. Um, oh. And we, because we have the cool room, we run a cool bot. Um, we can have easily some, you know, we do have extra just waiting in, in Lula, so it's, it's pretty easy to, um, to take that and, and immediately sort of restock. Yeah. And then having, having the dried flowers down there too is, I, I think that's helped a bit for people if it's not quite what they're after or they came and what they wanted wasn't there. Um, right. the There's still something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So at the end of the day. Oh, yeah. and it, it, it's just made such an enormous difference to me with my back. So, you know, where before I'd be lugging, you know, five-gallon buckets full of sunflowers in and out of cars and, you know, running them into florists and, and all of that. Well, now, and, you know, and you're out driving, so you're not getting any work done back here on the farm. You're just sitting driving a car. But now... I can go down, set that stall up in the morning. I can come back and I can be planting or weeding or whatever in the garden. Um, I'm working away there and my phone dings with an email notification to say I've had a sale down at the stall. And that's that has just been huge, you know. And, and you know, whereas before, yeah, I was lugging buckets, delivering, I was getting yeah. parked lines my van engine would blow up and I'd be coming home you know on a tow truck <laughs> and, oh, <no>. and oh, <laughs> wow <laughs> you know this is such a god thing so um, yeah it sounds like it's working tremendously well I'm so glad that you found you know I've been hearing about so many COVID pivot, pivots and I'm not even sure if this is necessarily because of COVID or more because of your back injury Brenda but either way it's definitely a pivot and it sounds like it's been tremendously successful and I love hearing that it's a really quick feedback loop too we you know we learn really quickly what customers are taking and what they're not and uh and so what's what's popular because there's there's mixed bunches but there's also individual bunches just of straight. just one variety and so that people can take a few of those and 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 do something themselves with them and yeah you quickly learn the things that people want to take you know you so which are what seems to be most popular then i know it'll differ from farm to farm but for you guys what have you found to be the most popular Sweet peas. If you put a jar of sweet peas down there, a car doesn't even come and they disappear. Um, Gaviosa is too, and um, uh, the mixed bunches. People really go for the mix. We do like little mixed, you know, garden posy type things. They have been popular. Um, 
but Rudbeckia is not. Yeah. <laughs> we, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> and and we've, we've got not, you know, not a huge amount, but plenty of it because it grows like there's no tomorrow. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and and we love them, but yeah, they're not. They just don't sell. Yeah. So will you be adjusting your crop plan for next season then to just really gear towards what you're learning this season about the farm stall? Um, I think one thing this stall has given me, um, I mean, apart from people not liking our Brad Beckia, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's given me a lot more um, flexibility. Um, whereas, you know, when you're growing for the florist, you know, you've got to have certain flowers and certain colours, you know, for weddings or yeah. whatever. Um, when you're just selling to the general public, they're, you know, they're a lot happier um, or, you know, that they want and are happy to take a variety of things. And so that gives you a lot more flexibility, I think. Um, and we're sort of trying to get into doing a lot more. We start pretty much everything from seed. We Well, we've never bought plugs, but we start everything from seed and we're going to try and be saving a lot of our own seeds. So, you know, no guarantees on what we're going to get flower wise um and we're sort of mm. going to experiment mm. a bit yeah and we we had an excess of dahlias um when we um we had such a wet winter we normally over over winter the dahlias they just you know always stay in the ground yeah. but as it rained and it rained and then it rained some more and then it rained some more and, and we have quite heavy clay soils, uh, we started looking at, oh, you know, is this a panic moment? And so we did. And <laughs> <laughs> that was the damn thing. Yeah. And, um, and, well, not all of them, but most of them, and, um, and just um, kept them in, in core peat and, and until things started to come to life again. Um, but consequently, we had, you know, quite a few left over. So we, we potted a whole lot up and they were really popular and people are now posting online pictures of the cafes that they bought from us in their own gardens flowering with, you know, with, with much excitement. Oh, cool. And, and so that looks like it could be um, an avenue as well as the dried flowers have been quite popular too in the run-up to Christmas. And um, so thinking about what we can grow that dries well, um, that's another thing that we're thinking mm. about. Um, I grew a crop of wheat thinking wheat would be really popular, but that hasn't been so popular. Um, no? Huh. Yeah. So I've pushed most yeah. of that over. Um, and um, But maybe that's just a, you know, a time thing people will over time if they start buying more of the drives of, of having that kind of stuff but there's that dried stuff just gives you so much more flexibility in in your crops and knowing that you can harvest and then if it doesn't sell um fresh we can dry it and then you know a couple of weeks later it's on the stall as dried it's, there's, there's no waste in in that way and I guess you could save it for seed too. Then, if you if it ultimately didn't sell, <laughs> and you you could harvest seed out of it somehow, if it was you know something like nigella or something. So that would yeah be yeah yeah for sure. What's your system for drying? I mean, since I I assume you haven't been drying flowers 
for many years and this is a new new thing what did you employ <laughs> for drying on the spur <laughs> no look we've just been doing the you know the, the hanging in a cool dark place and 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 it's worked well yeah the stuff we're, we've done so far we haven't got into the you know drying stuff in um silica, silica or sand yeah. Thing. Yeah. i haven't been that adventurous yet we um we're in a low humidity area so um so drying we we just have them you know hanging in a, a room with a ceiling fan on that's that's darkened and they dry quite quickly oh you know, nice quite... well that's the difference between your climate and mine mine is high humidity so anytime i try to dry something it ends up not being very lovely <laughs> so... i think that 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 would be hard yeah for sure um yeah. and and to the degree that even things like um, nigella pods and stuff, you know, they dry quite efficiently just out in the field. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Nice. Yeah. Well, there's got to be some perks to having such high uh, heat and drought um, in your lives. <laughs> uh, not many perks, I'm sure, but maybe one tiny perk. <laughs> so speaking of high heat and drought and all of that intensity, let's talk about the crazy um, many year drought you had and then your exposure to the fires nearby and just generally, I guess what I would call climate change anxiety as a farmer and how do you feel like your, your soil management maybe has helped your farm be more resilient in those scenarios? Like any, any, anything you want to talk about related to <laughs> severe drought and climate? Um, so us uh, in Australia, we're, the driest inhabited continent on the planet, lucky us. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so drought, um, you know, it's not all that uncommon. Um, so, yeah, we've just recently been through three years of drought. So we started slipping into it in 2017. And so 2019 ended up being um, our driest and hottest year ever um, so we, um, we we'd normally get about 600 mils or 24 inches of rain per year but during the drought years we were only getting about half so about 12 inches a year um, you know so we average um, that's like sort of two inches a month on average we get some, some months um, during the drought like yeah so you wouldn't get two inches, you'd get five mils. So that's like a tenth. Of... Oh, wow. How do you even farm like that? <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> oh, it's, it's incredible. But, and, you know, like I said, you don't, you just don't think that it is possible to farm through that. And, I mean, it is extremely difficult, um, but, you know, we were we were blown away that mm. we did get flowers. Obviously, um, our production was down, um, but but it did happen. Um, and um, like, it, water is a big issue for us on our farm because we don't have um, town water here. So our only um, water is the rainfall that we catch off our property. So we catch that rainfall um, into um, 
the dams on our property. I think you call them ponds over oh, there. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, from and then from the dam, we pump it to a holding tank and then, you know, we run it out through drip tape to irrigate our flower crops. Um, but, yeah, so we, yeah, but we ended up through the drought running out of water. And um, so we had to um, then pay to truck water in each week and that gets uh, very expensive. Um, and um, oh. <laughs> oh, the water is that, that, that real limiting factor and, and um, it, as that landscape dried out, um, Around us, the, um, the, there was a series of soil moisture probes on farms um, within our locality and, and down past Canberra towards the coast. And so you could map through those where the soil moisture was sort of heading and they were measuring water um, moisture levels down about three feet, one metre, I think was the, the base of them. And the soil moisture profile was going down to zero. Um, so it was, the, the soil was completely devoid of, <laughs> of wow. any moisture whatsoever. And um, our landscape sort of, you know, it, everything went brown to start with, but then it sort of took on this weird gray. It was, it was so, um, so hard and and um oh the then there was just this was eerie eerie silence you silence, step outside yeah. oh gosh it, uh, it's bizarre the sort of silence you get in snow where that sound sort of gets yeah. absorbed but yeah. but it was because there was there was no life there was there was nothing there was no, no birds mm. or insects or you know all of that was gone oh. and uh, and the only noise, if there was noise, was the sound of the grass sort of crunching under your feet. You know, it was like walking yeah. on broken glass. Mm -hmm. But then eventually that just, you know, desiccated right down. The oh, my gosh. And, yeah. and so, you know, and then you'd get these huge dust storms. So we'd have a huge dust storm, you know, come, would blow in from the west. You know, you'd get these 55-mile-hour winds. And then from the east would come all the fire that all the smoke from the fires and you just get, you know, pummeled by smoke and, and dust. Um, and then, you know, it might just put out a few spits of rain during that dust storm, but it just ended up, the rain just ended up falling as mud. So, you know, if your flowers, if you had flowers. They that were, were dirty then? Oh, gosh. <laughs> in mud. So... But, um, but, like, you know, when we decided to do flower farming, we knew that our biggest limiting factors were going to be, um, you know, frequent drought and our, our limited water supply and also our sort of decrepitude. <laughs> so um, we, you know, we did know that was going to be a problem and we studied other previous droughts and we sort of saw that in other droughts there would be an occasional month somewhere in there where you would get this sort of random storm that would dump a whole lot of rain that would replenish your dam and at least help you get through the remainder of the drought but but in this drought we just we just didn't 
get um, get anything like that. Mm. It just got drier and drier. But luckily, 2020, we um, about February 2020, we started getting good rainfall, and we've had we've actually now had <laughs> well above average rainfall. Um, yeah, we had over a thousand mils of rain for the year instead of you know, 600 average. Yeah, or- wow. <laughs> what was we were getting two to three hundred the yeah. years prior so yeah well that's yeah. great I'm glad to hear that it broke then but in the meantime while it was the drought was so severe how did you keep your spirits up to even want to go out and do anything with the farm I mean did you just want to pack it up and move to <laughs> I don't know Sydney or wherever <laughs> well how did you keep going um oh well look you know, the fact that the garden was trying, so I call it a garden because, you know, I'm only an acre, so, um, but um, it, that it, it just kept trying for us so hard and, you know, that we were getting flowers and we were amazed and the whole community, you know, like they really got behind us and they were so supportive. They, you know, they just couldn't believe that we were, you know, turning out flowers in this drought. And so, you know, that sort of, that keeps you, um, that keeps you going. Um, And, um, you know, having that green space through a drought is just so important for your mental health. It, um, because you, you really do go, to some dark places when you go through a drought. And I mean, we're, we're fortunate that, like I said, this isn't our main source of income. It's just, you know, a supplementary thing. Um, and I just don't know how, you know, people who farm for their living, I don't know how they do it. I, you know, I don't know how they do it. Um, so yeah, we're lucky with Andrew Andrew works full time off farm as a, a teacher, a school teacher in Canberra. Um, so it um, and we'd have a bit of rain. You know, you might get ten mils or so, half an inch that might come. And I'd go into school, and everyone would say, "Oh, geez, that rain must have been great." You know, is does that fix anything for you? Did that fill your dams up? And it's like, well, oh, gosh. <laughs> enough to water the plants. <laughs> you know? Oh well. Oh, well, at least they cared to ask yeah. and, and to care, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and sometimes that, that, that's a bit hard because, you know. But it, it always shows you too how, you know, disconnected, you know, people become from nature and cycles and yeah. and all that sort of thing. And, you know, I've heard it said that um, the word sophisticated is the opposite of natural and um and you know you think yeah well as a species we're pretty sophisticated now <laughs> we really have sort of stepped away from from the order of things so yeah 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 definitely time to take a quick break and get a word from one of our great sponsors that makes this podcast possible Flowers are reaching a diverse and appreciative customer base today through farmers markets, CSAs, grocery stores, weddings, contactless delivery, and UPIC. This diversity is supported by the strong community of members in the Association of Specialty Cut Flower Growers. 
Since 1988, the association, better known as the ASCFG, has been uniting and educating specialty cut flower growers across the globe, supplying them with accurate and up-to-date information about best practices for both the production and marketing of cut flowers. The ASCFG publishes the only trade magazine in North America dedicated entirely to specialty cut flowers. It also produces a host of classes and conferences on topics ranging from floral design to irrigation. The connections made with growers through an ASCFG membership are priceless. My own flower business would not be where it is today without the generous mentorship of fellow ASCFG members. Visit ASCFG.org to learn more about all the great benefits of becoming a member. Mention no-till flowers when joining and receive a $50 discount on a new membership. All right, let's get back to this great conversation and dig even deeper. Yeah, I've got a lot to say on that topic, but I'll stay on track with the idea of no, no-till farming and um, just uh, growing in general. So, but, so let's talk a little bit about no-till. And I know um, you guys have told me already uh, over email that you'd been no-till, but then shifted to low-till. And I want to know a little bit more about that. Why did you decide to make the shift? And I suspect it might go back a little bit, Brenda, to your um, back issues. So maybe we need to work that in too. But let's talk about no-till versus low-till and how that changed on your farm um, and why you made that decision. Um, well, we, when, when we started, um, we, we didn't have the equipment that we've got now. We... We had a little backhoe and our original rows we we dug up with the, the backhoe um, and they've become our perennial rows now and uh, and obviously no-till <laughs> because... <laughs> As a result. Yep, they've moved. But um, we started, we in terms of how we were starting the, the new beds as we expanded, we ended up getting a, a rotary tiller for the tractor. And um, our soil here, um, it's described as a clay loam, but it's, it's much more clay than loam. We only have maybe one to two inches of, of topsoil in most of the areas on the farm. And it really quickly becomes clay and then solid clay and then um, clay-like rock um, about 12 inches down, you know, it gets as dense as stone, especially as it dries out. So we don't have a lot of topsoil to play with. And, and if you start bringing up that what's below, you end up just with that solid block of clay on top. So we certainly didn't have soils that um, lent themselves to you know, a, a tillage process. So... Um, but we hadn't investigated at that point when we we're doing all that ideas around tarping and things like that, that, that happen now. And I'm not sure that we actually would even still now go down that path. We, we haven't tried tarping or, or, um, doing that sort of technique. Um, our, so most of our beds we've, uh, because we've got the tractor, and obviously I love the tractor. Um, <laughs> uh, um, we, we had a, I think you call it a subsoiler. We already had oh, a, yeah. mm-hmm. we, call, we call them reapers. And um, so where a new bed was going, I would run that 
ripper down in one or two lines just to break up that clay and um, get some air and infiltration happening down deep. Um, and then we we had a rotary tiller at that stage and then we, we were just tilling up that top surface um, a couple of times and getting all the amendments in that we needed. And that was that was it, you know, that was how we sort of prepared the beds. That it was a pasture, our paddocks were sheep paddock before that we're in, um, where we kept our, our couple of sheep and um, had Hannah really only had had livestock on it before. So it was a good annual pasture that was, you know, one of our best spots in terms of the, of the whole property for where pasture grew. Um, but, you know, some of that, most of it was annual weeds uh, or annual grasses, um, but there was a lot of um, other sort of forbs and things that were, that were in it. And so I sort of regarded that it had been cover cropped for the last, you know, X number <laughs> of years before us. Right, uh, yeah. And so it was, it, you know, it, it was ready in that way. And, um, and for some of the rows to plant a cover crop, and I still do this now, um, I'll just spread out the seed on the top of the bed and then run the tiller down at once, not deeply, but use that as the tool for, for actually burying the seed. And that works really well. And so, you know, you get this sort of instant cover crop um, that comes up. Um, and we use drip tape, everything's on drip here. Uh, we, um, the only overhead watering we do is when we first plant something and, and we're doing some hand watering but we use no sprinklers or, or anything like that. Um, and we plant to the drip points on the drip lines. So um, looking at, there was a photo on your Instagram, I think we're using the same drip tape as you with the mm, blue line. Yeah, you can get it in like six or eight or 12 yeah. inch. Yeah. So we've, we've got ours at, at eight inch intervals and we run three, three lines of drip tape down each row. Um, but we plant to the actual drip point. And, oh, so it's really efficient and accurate watering then. Yeah, so and and so we only, you know, we 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 try to be you know, really super efficient with that water. We're not watering. I could paste. understand after that drought. Um, so that helps reduce your weed impact then, and and of course we're we're using our deep mulch from our own hay as um, to to cover that with. So we don't, even though the beds have been created out of, you know, from the field and, and here, you know, you're talking about a seed burden that will outlast all of our lives in that, in that seed bank that's in the soil. So, um, so just by having the, using that drip tape and having the hay mulch um, has really reduced the, you know, the way things would grow back if if you just went and filled it and, and watered it well everything would just grow back exactly as it was before yeah um so so that's in within the drought that's that's really helped us that you know we weren't uh we weren't tilling the beds and you know planning to those drip lines um to swap a bed out we were just um it if um if, dog if dog I hear the dog that's all right no worries <laughs> um, 
the um she wants to come out and have her say she said i did some of the digging too um like i know all about the farming what are you talking about (laughs) um so to um i'm not sure if i'm getting quite off track here but when we when we then flip a bed um more often than not we i'll use I think of the rotary tiller not as a tillage tool. I think of it more as a, a multi-purpose tool. So okay. although I do, you know, use it at times to um, re-establish a bed, um, more commonly I'll use it, I'll run it above the ground. And so if we've got things like sunflowers or um, snapdragons, I'll just go down the bed with it maybe six inches above the ground and use it as a kind of flail mower in a way just to chew and chop it. Oh, interesting. Oh, wow. So you you essentially are beating down the crop with it. Yeah, and that leaves the the roots intact in the the soil but breaks up the the plants enough in most cases to, you know, to to finish them off, um, especially... They're well at the end of their season. Um, and it can stay on the bed as mulch or it can be easily raked off. Um, I've found that that works, that works really well. You can use your tiller too for um, rolling a, crimping a, a cover crop too. So you just don't have it running. I, you know, I'll just run down you the just road. just drag it along? Or, yeah, tell me more about that because I think that's a big hiccup when you don't have a crimper. How do you get you know, cover crops down. Tell me how you yeah, use the tiller. So the, 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 tiller um, the tiller's been really good for that because we're, you know, I, I'm not cover cropping. The cover crops are literally in the beds. They're not, um, you know, huge blocks of, of, right. of cover crops. Um, yeah, you just drop it to ground level, all its weight on the ground. You can actually... Just above ground. To crimp. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, to, and, and you can add some weight on top, some um, uh, drums of water or you know, something yeah. like that to be heavier. And um, I'll, our tractor's got a bucket on the front, so uh-huh. I'll drop the bucket right down and it does the initial push over. Oh, um, yeah. And then uh, usually two or three passes because of the way, you know, there are gaps in your, your tiller. You might have to move a bit to the left or the right. Um, that's usually enough to, to, to push and crimp your, your crop down. And wow. I finally I just, have a use for my tiller again because I pretty yeah. much let it sit and rust for the past two that's years. Right. The, the, um, the wheat crop that, uh, that I had in, um, which, you know, I'd let go through to, to seed, and that doesn't worry me because, you know, I'll, I'm happy for that to grow back again next yeah. season. But um, I just pushed that over it. You know, it was completely straw dry and, and it's got a, a mulch now on top that's, you know, four to six inches deep. And and that actual wheat was planted because I use it as the seeder as well. So that that wheat crop was planted just by broadcasting the seed down the row and then running the tiller down. To, running the tiller over it. Okay. So there's definitely still uses for the tiller. Yeah. Maybe yeah, it's yeah. not so, deep tilling. <laughs> yeah. So I think the, the tiller might have got a, a bad name and we, we certainly don't deep till with it that's you know working in that that top one or two inches and um i'll use the broad fork a bit um maybe once a year down each bed um, okay 
one point. Um, and we've not had any problem with a compaction layer or anything like that. So um, that's, you know, that's worked out quite well for us. And, um, and it's also like, um, I mean, I haven't done thorough testing around this or, or found too much research on it, but um, when you are trying to make those big amendment changes, especially at the start where you're trying to get compost in um, into your soils uh, you know you need some way to incorporate that mm. uh, our soils were quite acid when when we started we're around 5.2 um, and we're up around 6.8 now um, but incorporating that lime in um, I think was really helpful at being able to make that change quickly and um, there was somewhere that I was looking the other day that um, around the farm that has had mulch on it for years now. And I dug up some of that just with the, the shovel. And although, you know, there were wormholes and things, I'm sure the organic matter hadn't changed more than maybe a quarter of an inch under the soil <laughs> surface. So, so waiting for that stuff to, to, to naturally happen, I, I, I think in our environment that yeah. that does take too long. Take a long time because there's yeah. just not enough moisture and soil biology happening, it sounds like, to keep it kind of churning over in that. Yeah, in that yeah. And, and think, you know, now that we're at that point where, um, you know, we're, we're running organic matter about 8.5. Um, that's happening now. We, uh, you dig a shovel out of some of our beds and I, I dug one up. I, I took a shovel load out the other day just to see. I was uh, earlier on in spring and I stopped counting at 150 worms. Now, if, if you've got wow. 200 worms or so working every shovel full of your, um, your soil well, that's yeah. a serious amount of yeah. tillage that's going on. Um, yeah. But it wasn't like that when you started, I take it, you know, when you first started the farm. No. Yeah. 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 Yes. And how many years has it been to, to get to this point? Do you feel like? Um, well, that was that we started all of that sort of 2015, 2016. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 So three or four yeah. years to get, yeah. to get it really cranking yeah at this point yeah so so um i guess a couple of other factors um which revolve around our age and, and health and and certainly and i think they're important factors for for young people as they think about moving forward with their farming um we found in the the no-till beds like to put in we do about 500 to 600 plants in a row in a bed uh, if we do the full length one into the other and when it's no-till because uh, our soils are pretty heavy that's a individual hole that you've got to dig yeah for each one yeah one that that's an actual you know fairly decent push into the ground i use a, a small paint scraper I, I love making other tools do the jobs for us <laughs> Um, but you, you're cutting that little hole for every single plant. And, uh, but if you run that tiller down, just those one or two inches 
that's enough to make that job happening a fraction of the time. Yeah. And when when it's hard for you to be down, you know, crawling along the ground at that height or bending over to do that, um, that's a, a significant saving on your body. Yeah, and um, that that was the problem for me. It's that sort of you know getting up and down off the ground, but but you know once you're down there and you're sitting still for a long time, that's when the back just totally seizes up and yeah, <laughs> and yeah. So anything I can do. So motion is my lotion. So if I keep moving, you know, and so in that way, the the farm work, you know, when you balance it right and don't overdo it, it's actually, you know quite beneficial for my back you know it's keeping yeah. me active but it's that you know doing you know too much and and <laughs> it um it ends up harming you but yeah um, yes. so that was a that was a very big factor in us deciding to to bring back some tillage so yeah we, we are doing it keeping it low till but um yeah we've we've um had to bring bring some tillage back in. Yeah. Well, I think it's important to for farmers in general to always balance those ambitions for what you might see as, um, you know, the ideal way of doing something. I mean, if, if farming teaches you nothing, it will teach you that, you know, you can aim for perfection, but ultimately will never <laughs> achieve it. So finding a balance between you know, your your pie in the sky ambitions and then the reality checks of life, I think is such an important lesson to learn and continue practicing as a farmer. So while yeah. it's great to think like, oh, let's all go no-till and this podcast is entitled No-Till Flowers, but <laughs> ultimately it's about um, making really thoughtful choices. And an earlier guest of mine, Ellen Polishuk, said something about thoughtful tillage, and that was maybe a better approach than than no tillage. And I, I think she's absolutely right. And you guys are, are exemplifying that based on, you know, your soil originally wasn't conducive to no till. It wouldn't have wouldn't have worked for you. And now with your life's, you know, where your life balance is at, it also doesn't work. So just being thoughtful is all yeah. what it's really about. Yeah. Yeah. And and taking the time to understand what you're starting with. What, you know what your actual starting point is and and choosing the right technique for that for what you've got uh, in your location because um, it's certainly pretty easy to get caught up in oh I read this book or, or I saw this and oh this person's doing that and and it's like well well actually that's never going to work on our soils um, yeah yeah or I, I don't have the water that, that you know that could maintain that or um, you know I don't even, or I don't have the equipment or whatever. Right. Always those limiting factors. And um, yeah, we always have to be cognizant. Um, yeah, definitely. And yeah, and um, not having those dogmas of, you know, there's only this way to do it or there's only that way to do it. And actually, I guess being sort of brave enough to actually try something different or, or maybe something that you thought, you know, wasn't going to be right, but um, might end up being right. Not yeah. over your whole place, <laughs> just, <laughs> yeah. just and, uh, and, and I said, well, because in, in um, thinking about this as we sort of prepared for the, the show, um, the podcast, it got me thinking more about tillage. I mean, I think about it a lot, but yeah. um, probably it's healthy. But... Um, <laughs> 
I started to think then, well, we actually, we import a lot of tillage onto the farm too. So uh, we don't grow a lot of bulbs. Uh, we do grow ranunculus. Um, all of those big things that if you're bringing them in um, to your system, undoubtedly have come from heavy tillage. Yeah. Um, you watch those videos of what they do on those bulb farms in Holland and it's like, oh, my God, that's incredible. But it's, you know, the whole place has turned over yeah. um, quite, you know, to that extreme. And we're actually importing that onto the farm and we're doing that with our with our seed stock, um, which, you know, undoubtedly, you know, has been through those processes. I don't, I'm not sure in America, but, you know, you're going to be pretty hard-pressed to find organically grown flower seeds here. Um, you know, they've they've pretty much all come out of um standard right systems. production cycles yeah production and and so so we actually you know we're doing you know obviously a lot at our ends around this but you know we are still importing that um at that point so you know some of the tillage has already happened before before, before we, we even got it yeah that's a really good point to think about like a, a philosophical point to consider yeah, and, yeah i hadn't heard people talk about that before and it, it just got me, me thinking about yeah. that and then promotes the idea of seed saving and um you know ways of keeping that production within your farm so that yeah especially with you guys with your drought one thing that i've thought about too is how seeds the the plants that survive something like that multi-year drought or any sort of you know catastrophic climate orientation of some kind like here in philadelphia where i'm farming we're having exponential amounts of rain kind of the opposite of you guys and it's really impacted what can thrive and what can't and I've thought about how if you save the seed from the flowers that actually survived that climate event, um, how their genetics have have been tweaked and tailored to survive. So that you know you can just build upon that and create these crops that you know maybe there are a hundred kinds of scabiosas in the world, but you'll have your scabiosa that really handles Australian drought. You know that kind of idea of planning ahead for that seems really powerful yeah, to me definitely i've been listening quite a bit to uh, a, a podcast urban farmer podcast um and he has bill mcdermott on regularly who's from the rocky mountain seed alliance mm -hmm. I think. yeah yeah bill's great um, and he talks a lot about that epigenetics of of the um seeds expressing the genetics they need for the location they're in and yeah and i think there's a lot to be to be worked around that yeah that's you know all that's in infancy for certainly for us and you know i'm literally here beside a bucket of bags of seeds that we've collected this year from <laughs> lots of different years. Um, so our so, house is very neat and tidy obviously yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so um yes so Certainly plan to, to, to test that out now. So, yeah. Um, yeah, that's great. So, so speaking of seeds, though, you, you guys said you start all your own seeds. Do you have particular, um, like, additions you make to your seed starting mix in terms of biodynamics or some sort of boost and, you know, something to boost the biology in your seeds as you're starting them or any, 
any pointers for people starting seeds besides just like put them in the soil and watch them grow? <laughs> Anything else that you do? <laughs> uh, that, that's been a bit of a journey for us. Um, and I'm still experimenting with things. We've been, you know, really successful with starting seeds. And like we, we grow Lysianthus and we do that from seed. And I know... You are masters. <laughs> challenging, a challenging. Um, but um, but we started when we started. We started with soil blocking, and um, that I think was a really valuable way to to start because you know we were small then, and and um, I find the the physicality and the space required for um, doing soil blocks. It just got too much as we, we progressed on. Um, but I think doing soil blocks really taught us what a good seedling was like and, and what, what, what was possible. And we were making all our own mixes then. Um, but as we got bigger, um, we started to change our method and we started to use trays, um, individual cell, like cell trays, um, twos and, and 128s. And um, and now we've we're just sort of transitioning slowly because they're um, pretty expensive. Is the wing strip trays that kind of oh, you're trying them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are they and, going well? Yeah, and they yeah. they grow a really nice Seed. seedling. Ah, for, okay. Um, so they're yeah. worth the expense then. I, I mean, I know veggie farmers rave about them, but I didn't. I don't know they're, many people who've tried it with flowers. They're pretty tough. I wouldn't like to drive over one, but, I, you know, I reckon you probably could. Um, <laughs> and, you know, you leave some of our other trays, you'd leave out in the sun while you're planting stuff and, you know, they've yeah. therefore warped and turned into yeah. a circle. Um, but these are, they're, they're solid. They're great. Um, but they're developing those roots that go down instead of around. Um, and, and so, uh, like soil blocks, so they're the closest thing to the, the soil blocking. So... If you could afford those, um, I reckon they're, they're a good future um, and certainly we're going to increase the number of those that we've got. Um, but in terms of a mix, um, we use a, there's a local um, company that makes mixes here. They, they do potting soils and wood chips and things like that and, and they make a, a seed raising mix, um, which we only it probably makes up about 50 percent of the mix um and then we're adding core peat uh to that so the coconut core oh yeah um, yeah we have uh, we get compost we make some of our own compost and, and we will use that too but we also buy some in uh from um someone that makes it about a oh, what's that, about 50 miles away from us um, and it's a humus-based compost. It, it, it's like soil. Um, okay. You can't use you can't use it directly. We in the field we use it more as an inoculant. So okay. down we'd only put a bucket of that down. Um, but we'll add that we add that to the mix. So um, some handfuls of that. So that's bringing in that kind of inoculation that you might get um, from a seed dressing. Um, we use some perlite. Um, for that added aeration and um, a handful or two of, of rock phosphate, soft rock phosphate. 
Um, and um, we also, there's a, a product from a, um, a guy in Australia, they're called Nutritech, um, and they have a, a seed starting um, inoculum to that um, you can add to the, the water yes. and then you add that to the mix. Yeah, and all his stuff's and, organic. Yeah, and it's all, all his stuff's okay. organic. Um, and that um, we have used worm castings and um, you know, sort of worm products too, and, and they were good. Um, but that's kind of like the basic mix. Okay. And, and, um, and then we have a small, like I made a propagation box that's a, a sandbox um, that has lights on top and we can, and, and, and a, it's an actual reptile heater. Um, oh, nice. In the sand, so it's a wet sand base and, and has a, a waterproof um, reptile heating element in that, into a thermostat. And then, uh, and then it has... Um, plastic sheeting that goes on top and then the, the lights hang above that. And, and you we set can, those trays straight on to the wet sand? Is that what you're doing and that helps with moisture? How many I start? Normally, it, it, if if I'm doing a lot of trays, I'll put them on the sand and also above. But because it's like enclosed, the, the temperature and the humidity is the same throughout the whole, the whole thing. So that's... Most of the time, how we start because even in summer, our evening temperatures uh, might go down to 12 or 14 degrees. In, in summer. so trying to knock that range of, of temperature out, um, but then as soon as they crack, straight out into the, the tunnel. Um, and we've got a, a small tunnel that we um grow the transplants on in and. I changed the cover on that so it's plastic for part of the year and um, shade cloth for... Okay. But incredibly, because we've been so mild this summer, I've not had to change it back from plastic, <laughs> um, which is kind of weird. Um, so <laughs> therein lies the difference in our, um, our, our, our climate from, from normal um, this year. So, yeah, so, and then um, because they're out in the tunnel... Um, and all the doors are open, and so it, we don't ha have to harden things off usually, and they just go straight out into the field um, from there. So, yeah, so moving towards the, the windstrip trays. Um, but I think if you were starting out and starting out small, I'd certainly give soil blocking a go. Lisa Ziegler, um, her stuff taught us um, a lot about that. Um, and then... Yeah. Oh, and we, we do use the biodynamics too. Um, I was going to ask you about that. Do you do any sort of preparations or do you spray anything on there then, the biodynamics stuff? Uh, yeah, we, we do do fairly regular applications of the biodynamic stuff. Um, so, I mean, it can get fairly woo-woo, but, you know, you don't, <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to, you know, there's plenty of, um, farmers of all kinds, you know, vineyards and that are big on biodynamics and, you know, they're not really into the woo-woo side of it, but but they, you know, they use it because it works It works, them. yeah, yeah. And, like, we're still pretty much amateurs with it, so, you know, we're far from experts and we're still learning, and that is something that I do want to learn more about. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of people don't sort of really understand what it is but you know so it's kind of like organic or regenerative farming with 
kind of a spiritual twist. Mm-hmm. You're looking, the aim is that you're improving your soil health and, you know, the health of all the life forms on the farm. Um, and you're sort of following a biodynamic calendar. So there's certain days for planting or, you know, starting seed or putting preparations out and all of that sort of stuff. And the, the preparations are made from um, things like manures and herbs and minerals. Um, and so something like preparation 500, which hmm. I think is an unfortunate, isn't that like a hemorrhoid ointment or something? <laughs> <laughs> something like that. <laughs> you can always count on the uncouth Australian, can't you? Um, anyway, so Preparation 500 is made using manure from um, a lactating cow and then it's stuffed into a cow horn and buried over winter and then it's dug up in spring and then you sort of uh, put it in a bucket of water and you're stirring to make a vortex one way and a vortex the other way. But the whole time you're doing that, you know, and this is where it gets into the woo-woo, you're sort of putting your intention into that mix and you know any other sort of forces and stuff but then you're dispersing it out over your soil and plants um in sort of you know it's pretty diluted sort of homeopathic dilutions that you get out and you know and i'll put that on the seedlings in the tunnel too um okay and yeah so um you know that that has yeah. you know we really do believe that has has made a difference for us, you know, and, and definitely as yeah. we came out of the, the drought. Yeah. Um, okay. It, okay. You know, ready to, to, to take off. Um, Cause we not just put it in the growing space, you know, we, we're working all around that space too. So, um, and your neighbors or, you know, locals probably think you're a bit crazy whatever <laughs> walk around the paddock with a bucket and tossing out these blocks of water you know like you know right. what are they doing uh, and uh but um but it, yeah it, it, it's really helped the energy i i think it's all about i mean i'm just starting the path of biodynamics and have made it one of the things i want to learn a lot more about um, I came, I came towards it from a Korean natural farming kind of approach in that like, you know, KNF first opened my eyes to this concept of like, you could bruise things yourself. <laughs> and yeah. now, now I'm looking at biodynamics and um, I really haven't done much yet except read a lot. So I'm, I'm very intrigued to hear other people have actually put it into action um, and to hear how that's you've seen the increase in life and the increase in energy in this space. So that's very encouraging to me. Yeah. Yeah. No. And yeah, I love that it, you know, that, that you get to put your intention in, into that. You know, I think, um, I, I think there is something to that. And I sort of think it's a bit like, um, you know, you think of aromatherapy where, um, you're inhaling the scent of say lavender and it and it's giving you your its energy or its intention mm-hmm. you know calming or peppermint you know you inhale that and you're invigorated so I sort of think well if energy can flow you know from plants yeah. to why can't it flow back the other way we right put, yeah so um and you know and I I sort of think if you've got, if you're working with nature and you've got 
good intentions, you know, you're using methods that promote and protect life, then I think, you know, Mother Nature's really going to try and, and meet you, really try and meet you partway, if not always, working with her in a way that she understands. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, we need to learn to speak her language. We've always been kind of coming at it <laughs> with our own language, but there's there's so many other forms of communication out there beyond human human uh, words, and and it would be great for us to kind of be open to those other forms of communication. I feel like I feel like it's I think what you were speaking about during the drought, just walking out into the world, and it was so quiet, is an example of how we can't speak. The languages of the world per se but we can hear it <laughs> and in that same way i think biodynamics we don't necessarily understand exactly what's happening there but if you just feel it then it starts to make a little bit more sense i'd say that's my guess at least <laughs> yeah. well um you know like just going back to that you know that drought situation and and how you cope and stuff and like this, <laughs> I'm probably going to be getting a bit weird here, but you know, my that's son... okay. I welcome weird on this podcast. I really do. <laughs> my son gave me some very wise and slightly uncharitable advice. He said to me, Mum, you're getting old. You can drop the filter. In fact, you know, when you get old, people expect you to drop the filter. So just drop the filter, say how you feel and think, you know, and let your, your weird light shine. So, oh, I love it. <laughs> so I'm going to run with that advice. Um, that's that's just, fantastic. Share something about how you get through the drought emotionally. Um, to do with spiritual connections and stuff like that and I'm sure you've probably had this experience like when you're out delivering flowers to somebody um, so you'll go and deliver the flowers to a customer and, and you know they'll invite you in for a cup of tea and then you get the garden tour and all of that so and, and you know they start telling you things like well this is the garden my wife created she died last you know, or this is my mum's rose bush that, you know, we transplanted it here to our garden after she died. And so, you know, you sort of see that people are making, um, I'm getting a bit choked up here, uh, people make a spiritual connection through their gardens to lost loved ones. And, you know, you hear Indigenous people talk all the time of having a connection to spirit and ancestors through the earth. So, you know, it's a similar sort of thing that's happening for those people within their gardens. And, and you know, I get that too in my garden. So, you know, through those hardest days of the drought, you know, I had a real sense of my Nana's voice in my head saying, you know, that, um, you know, and then that's what got me through those really hard days. She'd be there sort of saying, you know, just get through today. Don't think about tomorrow you know, just get through today. And I mean, that is how you get through it. You know, you just do one day at a time. Um, and, you know. <laughs> yeah, and lean into that, that, um, that spirit in the world. I think that's why we saw, and I love that, by the way, Brenda, I think that's, I so heartily agree with everything you said. Um, and I think we've witnessed that somewhat as, as a the globally as as a, a species 
when during COVID, so many people embraced plants and gardening and just needed to be out there. And I don't think it was just because everybody's bored and stuck at home. I think there's just such an energy that flows through soil, literally, you know, <laughs> from our fingertips into the soil and, and connects us to plants and their roots. And that connects us to the bees and to the birds and all the things, you know, though that network of energy is, is what we need as, 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 you know, just animals as part of an ecosystem. That's what we ultimately are. Um, and our spirits are entwined. So yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Well, look, I know, and you know, just talking about the community <clears throat> support and you know, people wanting plants and flowers. Um, like I know, you know, the, the bouquets I make, like I'm not a florist, so the bouquets I make, I know that they've not been built with the proper mechanics or the artistry that you know a properly trained florist would put into them and so you know I was really just a bit puzzled as to you know why when people in our community could just as easily go and buy flowers from the florist or the supermarket you know why were they choosing ours and you know the local community was just really amazing in supporting us they really got behind us and you know I like just had so many incredible experiences. You know, I had, um, we'd reached a point where we just couldn't afford to buy in water anymore. And, um, and I literally, I sat in my garden that day and I said to my garden, cause I'm weird like that. And I talked to my garden, <laughs> I said, I said um, you know, look, this is it. I can't do this anymore. You're gonna have to do something if you want us to keep going. And talk about serendipity, because I kid you not, the next day, my next door neighbour called me and he said, he said, look, you can't keep buying water like that. Um, I'll be offended if you don't take some of my water, because he had a little spring-fed oh. dam a long way from full, but wow. he had some, and so he got, he got his, he's got an excavator. He excavated a trench and put in work, pumped me water. So sent the water over to me and, you know, he saved my garden. Oh my gosh. I just got chills from that story because that's exactly what happens. That's amazing. That kind of blow, that kind of kindness, you know, that just, you know, it just blows you away. And that's the kind of stuff that really keeps you going. But anyway, to get back to the <laughs> my flat, <laughs> you know, I'd be down at my farm gate stall and I'd meet customers and they'd say to me, look, you know, I've been following you, you know, on social media through the drought and, you know, I've seen how hard your gardens tried for you. Um, and so, you know, then I realised why they wanted our flowers because, you know, we'd been through all the death and destruction and havoc, you know, we had drought and fires and a pandemic. And I realised, you know, that the flowers were giving people a sense of hope and, mm -hmm. you know, and like you said, I just think so many other flower farmers have had that experience through the COVID. Yeah, yeah. And I think there's so much... Um, just energy in flowers that it's not just, you know, the colors that people are attracted to. I think there's that people can sense how much you've cared for the blooms and how, 
how um, nature has cared for the blooms and all of that just adds up to something that is a very tangible um, gift, you know, both from nature and from the farmer and, and um, the community's support back as a gift as well. So it's just sort of that, that cycle of reciprocity that um, is what makes the world go round. Yeah. I think also they, they notice from us the seasonality too, which you don't get, you know, from a supermarket or whatever, you know, right. Lysianthus are only going to be now and dahlias are then, and, you know, you can't have ranunculus now or peonies now. Right, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that there's a, a much greater connection to what's available at any particular yeah. time. Yeah, Really, that those particular flowers, well, then there's the wait until next year when it comes the next time yeah it's kind of nice that you can't have what you want all the time you know in a world where we can get anything at the click of a button generally speaking it's kind of it makes things more precious to have to wait for them a little while yeah Yeah. and and then i think it builds their enjoyment of maybe the things that they weren't necessarily thinking that they might like before or whatever you know yeah yeah the surprise (laughs) (laughs) yeah so let me ask you guys, besides Preparation 500, were there any other biodynamic preparations you used before I forget to ask you more about that? <laughs> you know, talking about energy in the world. Uh, yeah, the horn silica. Horn silica. Mm-hmm. Okay, you've tried that. All right. And that works? I, I have not done that one yet at all. It strengthens up the cells and helps, you know, with insect damage. Um, I've, I have tried the valerian for the frost. But I can't add. I can't say I've had. Um, uh, maybe I haven't done it properly. I haven't tried it enough to know. I guess is what I'm really saying about that. Um, and um, I think you use the horsetail over there um, yeah. for like fungal things. But but it's a bit harder for us to get. So we have a, a native plant here, she oak, that we use. Um, that we use for that. And yeah, I've had success with that, you know, on things like powdery mildew and, and things like that. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. it's working. So so it's just worth the exploration then to, to explore more of that. Where did you learn, what was your foundation for learning about that? I've got a book that I've been reading. Did you have any particular resources that would be great? Um, we sort of got introduced to it. Our son went to a Steiner school um, when he was in primary school. Hmm. And so um, I think you call them Waldorf, Waldorf schools. schools yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We do. We have those. Yeah. 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 So, um, so, you know, the Steiner's practice was right throughout, you know, their education process and they were gardening biodynamically and stuff. So there was, we knew about it before then, but that was quite a strong um introduction for us um there's a good association here in australia that um there's a couple of places that you can buy preps made already so that that makes it easy and they have really good information and and stuff um and have you been buying preps or did you actually make them yourself then we've done a bit of both um yeah so uh, we've had a go at the the uh preparation 500 and like I said, we've got, we use the native geo here, so we'll boil that um, instead of the horsetail. Um, but then, yeah, we'll we'll buy buy stuff into just because mm. you know 
we're always there's so much to do um, <laughs> i know well that's part of what stops me sometimes with the biodynamics is just the like the challenge of like wait where do i get all these things where do i get a cow horn i don't have a cow horn <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's hard to find that sort of stuff and can i tell you if you are going to do that mark it really well where you bury it because gee, it's a job finding those things again <laughs> oh no <laughs> i didn't think about that <laughs> um, but, um on the on YouTube, the uh, Living Web Farms, um, they've got quite a few biodynamic okay. um, videos about biodynamics on there and, you know, um, stirring preps and, and doing all that kind of stuff. Um, so that, that, that was a good resource for me. Okay. So one other topic I wanted to make sure to touch on was about growing your own hay, because I don't know very many flower farmers that grow their own hay intentionally to use as mulch, because you guys are just growing it for mulch. Is that correct? Or do you have livestock you're also trying to feed, and this is just a byproduct? Well, no. Uh, I guess the hay, to that degree, grows itself. Um, so... <laughs> Because we don't have any livestock, uh, we get significant pasture growth. Um, a lot of annual grasses, we, um, things like uh, phalaris and wild oats, um, there's a lot of in our, in our paddocks, but also clover as well. And, um, but our neighbour bales hay, it's one of the things that he does every year, so... He comes on and um, cuts around. It's November for us, so I guess the last month of spring. Okay, yeah. I mean, that's just how it works works for us. And um, it's good It's good at that time, and, and he cuts it and bales it, and we keep an amount, and, and he takes the rest. It's, it's a, yeah, it so. works really well for that. And uh, this year... It grew uh, taller than me um, out in the out in the paddock. It was it was actually fried. And if if I had to try and knock it down with the tractor and what we call them slashes, I think you call them brush hogs. Mm, um, yep. I don't think I'd have ever got through it. It was just it was it was huge. <laughs> and um, so so we've got these um, hay that has had no pesticide or herbicide um, on it because that um, that is becoming an issue with the, the uh, long-term, long-acting herbicides yeah. in, in the, the crops, uh, stubble and, and stuff. So we know that nothing but biodynamics has been on, on, on our, these. Yeah. our fields out there. And, um, and so, yeah, and that hay stores for, for years. So, um, you know, you do get, it's, it's a really good supply and and because it's got quite a mix of things in it, it's not just the one thing. Okay. Uh, and because it's off our place, it's not bringing in new weeds, you know, noxious weeds or something that are, you know, that's creeping in from everywhere. But we haven't got those issues on, on our place, so we know we're not going to import those. Um, those Do you weeds. have generally, though, weed issues because of applying hay? No, I mean, I know you get more new noxious weeds, but do you think it yeah, creates uh, a weed well, issue? Um, yeah, undoubtedly there are um, seeds in the mulch, but yeah. if you keep mulching, well, you know... It, it's it can't come up, a, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 that hasn't really been an issue for us. Okay. And... Um, 
if if depending on the timing and, and what's happening, if you're doing a whole row or if there's a couple of rows that you're changing over, um, we're using the tractor and, and, and a bit of manhandling, we roll roll it out. So oh. it, over the bed. Over the bed. Yeah. So you just you, So it's a round bale, not square bale, yeah, then it's round. Yeah, okay, yeah, gotcha. Round bale and you just roll it out and break it off at the end and there's your nice thick mulch. Wow. <laughs> I'm jealous. <laughs> that sounds amazing. <laughs> and then um, invariably that breaks down over the season and then, you know, when you need to do it again, you just roll it out and um it's it it's absolutely wonderful. Um, it's no and, wonder you have 150 worms in a scoop full of soil. I mean, with that yeah, kind of cover, that, they must love it. We, we um, we've got it's not, it's just one of the little electronic sort of microscopes that you connect up to your computer. Mm, you know, yeah, a fair bit for what you see, but um, you grab some of that mulch down on ground level and put it under that, and oh my god, it's just yeah. full. Yeah. It, there's just so many bugs. We've got no idea what they are, but and <laughs> Nicole Masters, who's the agro just oh, yep. mm -hmm. yeah, she talks about, you know, putting well, she talks about putting soil under the under the microscope, you know, and it's like a really bad sci-fi movie, and that is exactly <laughs> what it's like. It's like, yeah, sci-fi movie. <laughs> and but you know, but it's fantastic to watch because you know, it just gives you so much inspiration and hope. You think, wow, you know, there's all that mm. life there in that mulch. You know, I could have, you know, weed mat down that's just lifeless, but here's this this yeah. thing that, and, you know, that's just teeming with life. And we, we tried using just compost um, and, you know, sort of planting into the compost, into the beds and that, and but our climate, it just we can't keep that hydrated yeah because yeah the compost can be hydrophobic if you don't keep yeah, it moist and, so yeah yep yeah, and then it, that's exactly what happened it, it made the beds hydrophobic um but with the hay mulch um that's just not been an issue at all of course we ran during the drought um because we didn't have hay for the best part of three and um and we were using sugarcane mulch then that we were having to bring in, um, which was good. It forms a really tight you know, sort of um, surface cover and doesn't need to be too deep, which is good because it, you know, it's an added cost. Um, and I don't know, you know, you get that ever so slight hint of molasses from it. So, it, you know, I think it, it, um, it kicked along the annual beds a bit too so you know yeah. it, it was first during that um during that drought time well i would expect the hay that comes from right there you know it's kind of going back to that idea of like saving your own seeds and things being adjusted to the local climate and environment you know having your own hay it's already inoculated with all those sort of like natural microorganisms in your in your valley or wherever you know and and then you just lay that down onto the ground it's really following sort of that natural rule of return where you just return plant mater material to the ground, which is great. Yeah, and that's, that's one of the things with biodynamics is trying to get as much of the fertility from your own farm as possible. Yeah. So I mean, from back when that was started, well, people had their own cows and were able to sort of manage that a bit easier. Yeah. But um, one thing that we didn't 
we sort of skipped past and and uh, I should have brought it up at the time with the drought with the the drippers the the way we were irrigating and having that mulch to really keep that moisture in and having the high organic matter um we we calculated <laughs> We, I, you know, I measured the drip rates out of each of the drippers and we worked out, well, we could water, we could afford to water 100 litres a bed every second day, I think, with our watering rate. And that equated to a cup of water a day per plant. Um, oh, wow. And so, yeah, so our plants survived through that, um, through all that heat and... and yeah out on about a cup of water a day wow wow and um one of the things that really helped was um doing the hardy annuals over winter over wintering the hardy oh, annuals. so they had a good established root system already uh, yeah and during winter we just found we didn't need to water um so we you know we we, we didn't water them for five or six months, months. so we put them in we, we planted them into the beds in autumn. We hand watered for like a week or two just to get them settled in. And then we really did not have to water them again at all for another five or six months during autumn and winter. So, you know, just with the, the cooler temperatures, having that mulch, holding that moisture in, um, um, you know, it, it just didn't. Oh, and also, I think we, you know, we get sort of the morning dew, and they survived off that. And and that was in the year two thousand and nineteen, which was our driest year on record. You know, that was sort of, and you know, some of those months were those ones where you were getting, you know, yeah, five yeah. And in a month. <laughs> like we use um, frost cloth, but. We don't keep things in mini tunnels out in the field, but we will use frost cloth, which, which undoubtedly helps too for um, keeping, keeping some moisture of that. in. Yeah. yeah, the frost was running off the off the frost cloth and um, just you know running into the soil around the bed. Yeah, but yeah. So once yeah, once the heat of summer kicked in, you know, or and you know, sp late yeah, spring, yeah, anywhere, but. Yeah. yeah, we started watering again, but, you know, because those roots were so well established, they just, you know, they, they were fine. Yeah, I think that's a great adaptation. I'm so glad you just made a note of that. And it's kind of out there hanging, <laughs> hanging in the universe now, of, you know, people who are growing in a really dry area, maybe focusing, you know, whittling down the growing season to focusing on those early spring annuals that you can plant in the fall might be a really good strategy for coping with dry, super dry climates. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. definitely. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's a lot less water to have something in a tunnel than to start it in the ground too. Mm, uh, yeah. Is another thing. So just having those, getting those starts happening to the point to go into the, to the ground. Um, it's a lot less water. Um, yeah. Yeah. when you're in the clothes or a soil box or whatever yeah. and uh, then trying to start them or put them out when they're, when they're too, too small. Right. Yeah. So one final topic is a little bit more um, personal if it's okay, but let, let's talk about farmer health and self-care and, and what it's like to farm with uh, a physical limitation and maybe things that you had to to change. I mean, we already talked about the fact that you tilled so that planting you can keep moving 
relatively <laughs> efficiently and and changing to this the farm gate stall sales but is there anything else that maybe just advice for people out there who might be experiencing a bad injury you know at the outset of their growing season now or just those of us like myself who think about as i get older what should i have in mind about my farm systems what does somebody wish they had known when they were in their 40s you know what should i think about <laughs> for me i think it was uh, like deliveries are the real killer that lifting you know buckets in and out of vehicles because you're not only just you know bent over lifting but you're sort of you're, you're twisting you're twisting and you're lifting weight and heavy weights you know I, I think people are surprised at just how heavy um buckets of flowers can be um, yeah. <laughs> yeah so and um you know yeah so I think like Andrew actually made me it was quite funny we had this we got this old van and um Andrew built me this. It was sort of a sliding drawer system that oh. slid out. Yeah. So, I mean, it looked hilarious because when it was, it was this long, narrow drawer that was coffin-sized. So when it was full of flowers, you pulled it out the back of the car, you know, people would be falling off their chairs laughing when I'd open <laughs> up the back of my van. But it was brilliant, you know, it was absolutely brilliant because you didn't have to do that, you know, bending over and in and lifting, you know, you just... And twisting it. Yeah, that sounds amazing. So how did you build that, Andrew? What were the mechanics of that? Was, um, well, I just purchased some, um, well, the van, um, I'm not sure what the equivalent sort of van, but one of those little people movers, you know, normally... You know, it has the sliding door on the side and the opening door at the and so we just took all the seats out and put a, a board on the on the carpet in the back and then uh it was just some draw long draw runners i think they were like a meter and a half long um and then i made the boxes that um that attached to those draw runners so and it was all just made out of melamine um so it was easy to wipe over and the buckets slid on them so you could slide the bucket along the length of the, the drawer and then lift it out closer to you. Um, and, um, and yeah, they just, yeah, they just, um, wow. they, they had, the, the, the drawer sliders are made for things like four wheel drives and things like that. So that, um, and, and delivery vans so that when you push them in, they lock into place. So the things like going backwards and forwards, and then there's just two little levers, you, you push down and, pull it out just like a like a drawer yeah. would um wow. except there's no the top it's, it's just a you know a, a box yeah. that's over the top and yeah. um, and i think you could fit about five or six buckets in each drawer yeah. yeah um and um and they were made to hold the weight so um so we didn't need any extra support um so that yeah it, it worked really well and yeah that's um, really clever and uh, that is a big thing for because you see a lot of people on Insta and stuff, and they've they've got their car loaded up and their little cars, and you just sort of know well, <laughs> they're going to get stuck in trouble at some stage. Um, so, so having that 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 you know some kind of system um, that you know forgetting those things in and out because 
most of the businesses and things you deliver to, they're busy people and they're used to, you know, the couriers bringing the stuff in and putting it down on the ground for them and, and all of that. So, you know, you've, you've, you've got to go through all of that. And um, uh, we had a trolley that, you know, because sometimes, you you know, you obviously, and my most people have that, you park some distance away, so you slide the coffin out, get the flowers out, <laughs> put them into the trolley and then wheel the trolley through all the streets and the cafes and stuff and people staring at you and, and, right. um, and get them out yeah. the other end. Um, and just some other words of advice that I would have for people. I mean, look, I'm a little bit different. My back problem um, I had before I even started flower farming. So, you know, I was one of those silly people that came to it that probably shouldn't have really come to it in the first place. Oh, but, but it's keeping you young. So we've yeah. already talked about the motion is lotion. So. <laughs> Like I actually have a wacky gene that predisposes me to back problems. So it was going to happen one way or the other, you know, it, it didn't matter what I did. Um, but um, I think getting help, you know, getting some part-time help, and that was always the plan for us was, you know, like I get a lot of help from Andrew, but like I said, he works full-time Um in Canberra so you know he's his time to help is just sort of weekends and after school and I there's no way I could do it without without him. um but you know we'd always plan to um employ someone and and we were sort of making moves towards that when the drought really sort of kicked in and then all of a sudden um you know there wasn't money for an employee because we're buying water and hay and all of that. Yeah. So well, I think you've got to get, you know, I've done a lot of things wrong on the way I approached it business wise um, too. But I, anyway, I think getting help sooner rather than later is really important if you want to save your back and it's going to help your business, I think. <laughs> A lot in the long run. And also for me, um, like I like I was I've driven the tractor. I've I've been familiar with driving the tractor for a long time. Um, and I know a lot of women don't like or are scared of it. And I was petrified of it at first, but it's really worth trying to master it because we've got a bucket on the front of our tractor you know so I can just lift you know bags of manure or whatever you know shifting right. loads like that and it's doing all the lifting I don't have to shovel compost and that I can just drive the tractor and scoop it up and dump it so you know the tractor really does save you back a lot so I yeah. would try and push <laughs> past that fear or that feeling that that you can't drive a tractor or operate a tractor you know because you know if you can drive a car you can drive a tractor so. <laughs> true true yeah oh that's such good advice all around you guys have been full of so much amazing information. I'm really grateful for it. Are there any other final thoughts on just no-till systems in particular or, or biodiversity that we didn't talk about? I really wanted to go into like wildlife habitat too, Andrew, with you and, and hear about how you tamed an agenda <laughs> in, the, uh, in the wild. <laughs> so any quick thoughts on that while we wrap it up? Because I, I feel like I've kept you forever. Um, 
one of the things we did, which we did really early in the piece, and and I, I would imagine this would apply everywhere, is um, we put a, a windbreak around the um, the growing area in the direction to protect us from the prevailing winds. We already had a big pine tree uh, windbreak that was here before we came on one side, but but we put these others in, and we chose. Um, trees. Brenda went to a, she was doing a, a horticulture course at the time and a, a local indigenous um, fellow came to, to talk to them and take them out into the bush and he said the best thing that you can have for biodiversity uh, around here were uh, acacia trees we call them wattle and they're just fantastic there's umpteen of them they flower at different times as they provide such great habitat for birds and insects um, they grow really fast um, and so we established a, a wattle windbreak around the, the farm, the, the area, and then it was some time into it um, after we'd first started, we took one of our rows out of production and planted wattles, another one called tree lucen, um, tagestay, tagesti, um, and and saltbush, which uh, is a an atroplex type thing, but an Australian native um, atroplex. Yeah. And th those two things are actually fodder plants too, so they can be fed to your livestock. Um, yeah. you, you branches you cut down, and all that stuff grew just incredible. It just took off, and in how long are they now? Three three years. Three years, and Through and they're the like drought. twenty yeah. foot high now. Yeah. And just think, and the bird life, they're our best employees, like, you know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they are phenomenal. And there's the seed eaters that are cleaning up the seeds and there's the insect eaters that are cleaning up all the insects. Um, and, and they're all, you know, they're nesting in those trees and it's just, they've been the best thing. So that, they've really... Um, given like if we just had a paddock full of flowers we, we wouldn't have that life there because they need those trees and, and things to be in so um and and then everything else is, is, is sort of yeah come to us including eric the echidna. um <laughs> i love it if anybody well the listeners need to check out your instagram to see eric the yeah. like bathing in water was that during the drought when he came and he was like drought, please give yeah. me water <laughs> The garden just became a magnet for for everything then, and um, because it was it was it was cool at times, and it, it you know it had that that life that was yeah, it was an there. oasis in a desert, literally. Yeah. So and and something like an echidna, normally you know you don't see them that often, but because there was no grass anywhere, um, they became really visible, and um, and. And you were putting, we, well, we, we were putting water out deliberately yeah. for them. And, um, you know, he, Eric would just do the rounds each day. You'd be hearing bashes through the place. They don't have great eyesight, um, but they have a tremendous sense of smell. And, um, and they break up ants' nests. That's their, their, their food source. So you'd know Eric had been in the garden because things would have been turned over and pushed around. Um, <laughs> And, uh, Eric the home. Yeah, and he, he just wasn't that worried by us. He just barrel past. Um, yeah. And, 
That must yeah. have been so fascinating, though, to establish a relationship with an animal like that in that sort of symbiotic relationship through the drought, just trying to, both of you, <laughs> make it through, basically. They're, they're really nice moments when, when stuff like that happens. And um, we have, like, we have a big range of birds, and amongst them, uh, one one of the birds we have, they're called magpies here, and, and they have a somewhat not good reputation in city areas because in nesting season they attack people on bikes and kids walking to school mm. um but you know they're they're super friendly out here and they'll always be around you in the garden uh, they actually listen for grubs in the in the grasses and push their beak down to to get them they're fascinating birds and we love those and um we have Maurice. Well, we have many Maurices, but they all look at the same. Um, they're little fantails, and um, they're on to their second batch of, of babies now, and um, they just work the garden all day. And if you're in the garden, they actually um, get the insects moving by flying through, and they'll fly through to get you to move. They'll hit you in the chest or right oh, past wow. You move, and then you oh, the bugs, the bugs move, and then then they'll grab one, and off they go. And, and right. Oh, I never thought about that. I I walk through my dahlia patch and notice how that stirs up the birds, and I always thought, oh, I'm walking through, so that must make the birds move. But now that you're saying that, I think that's what's happening. They're they're going for the bugs as I move the grasshoppers jump and right. so forth. I bet that's what's happening. Before we came, there were no birds, you know, because the, the it was the, just a paddy. It was just a paddy. Yeah. So. All that life has, has come in. We we have the most venomous venomous snakes, um, I think, in the world. Um, oh gosh, I'm so glad we don't have venomous snakes here. They stick around, but we leave them alone, and they leave us alone. Um, and we have lizards and some fairly decent sized sort of lizards, which give you a fright because their tails look remarkably like the snake tails. Um, <laughs> but they clean up the snails. We have no snails. Um, yeah. We have slightly no snails. So even with all the hay, you haven't experienced snails or slugs, that you've got enough biodiversity there, they're taking care of that issue? Um, no snails, but we do get slugs, not a lot, but I think too because we're so dry. They're not... Oh, yeah, that's true. You would be. So, yeah, so that hasn't been too much of a problem. We get lots of earwigs. If you um... know a solution for earwigs. <laughs> Uh, well, I use a product for earwigs. It's organic, but it's called Sluggo Plus. I don't know if you can get it. Oh, dream of yeah. Sluggo Plus. You don't know how many I lie there. Oh, you must have a crazy amount of earwigs then. <laughs> yeah, you don't, can't get that here. So, yeah. yeah. So we just no. protect, protect things. But that's that's a reason behind not using cardboard and stuff like that because yeah. Yeah. it just makes 100% the perfect environment. They love cardboard. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, anything that's flattened on the ground just becomes a, yeah, a, a habitat. Yeah. Well, hopefully something will move into the farm that likes to eat your wigs a lot. I'm sure if you give it time, you know, nature always balances herself out. So at some point, something's got to come for all those earwigs. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're better this year. Yeah. Undoubtedly, they're better this but, year. Um, just yeah. sort of going to the, the wildlife coming into the garden, I think, like, especially now, now that the drought's broken, you know, and the garden really is flourishing, um, like the amount, you know, of life, all kinds of life in that garden is just astounding. And 
and it feels really special because you feel like like I don't want to say I created that garden but you know we played a part in it we were just part of the flow that yeah in there that that makes that happen but it's it's kind of it's really rewarding you go in there like like we said the birds will um swoop at you sometimes they're swooping because they're getting you to move to catch those (laughs) bugs and other times they're swooping because they're saying hey I've got babies here yeah yeah off lady because you're getting too close (laughs) And, and I get um, blue tongue lizards too you know I had a blue tongue lizard the other day that charged at me hissing and, that, and he's the same you know you go away I or she I've got babies I've got babies so you'd sort of take you can take that personally and be scared in that but I thought no that's really great because it means they've made a home and they're raising a family in yeah. that garden and that garden is taking on a life of its own and you've helped you've helped nurture that but you know it's kind of a bit like watching your child grow up and become you know their own person and, yeah. and that in the garden and that that's you know that really is just the most fantastic thing to see it sort of start you know that, yeah yeah, yeah mm. amazing. I think I think at a point uh, for me what kept me going as a farmer over really tough times especially in COVID um, was understanding that while I'm growing flowers and they're the thing that my farm sells to be able to continue to function, so to speak, um, it's really about all the lives that the, for- the farm's supporting. You know, it's, uh, for me here, it's like turtles and, and um, foxes and things like that. that that's a, a much bigger picture, you know, than just some flowers. It's not that flowers aren't important in the world, but I think I've, I've coached a lot of younger growers as they get started and encourage them to find what I call their big picture why. You need something more than flowers to keep farming when things like multi-year droughts happen or, or tornadoes hit your farm or some, you know, whatever really intense thing comes along, you need to have a bigger why in your life. Um, and I think you guys are on a similar page to me where a lot of times it has to do with seeing that full spectrum of life at the farm um, and not just the flowers. It's not just about flowers for me, at least. So, yeah. No, I think it's just a basic human need to be of service to something, you know, mm. so nurses and, nurses and teachers, you know, want to be of service mm. to humanity and teach and heal and that kind of thing. And and you know, for for me, it's about being in service of nature and mm. and life, and and to, especially when the world's in so much trouble, it's at least just some little thing that you can try mm. and do to make a difference. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Being, you're being you're a wise woman. <laughs> <laughs> I think just to being you know respectful of of all you know of that of those natural processes rather than trying to dominate them as soon as we try and direct that that's you know when you really start going astray um, oh, Andrew's been reading a really excellent book that we should mention oh do you. tell oh that's um it's by an Australian Aboriginal writer academic um Tyson Yunker Porter and it's called Sand Talk and um I just found there were lots of connections within that. And it's a sort of book you've got to read a couple of times to, 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 to really get with it. And it, it, he's, 
talking about in in the way Indigenous thinking can save the world. And he had this section in it um, which he'd been inspired from an, another Aboriginal elder, Doris Hollingsworth, and she had uh, this way of talking and, and thinking about our actions um, that sort of broke down to four words, and they were respect, connect, reflect and direct. And Indigenous cultures, you know, generally always work in that order. They start with respect and end with direct. But we have a tendency to work the other way. We start with the direct, I'm going to do this, you know. Right. You know, I, you know I'm going to have a farm and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And you start doing that and then when it doesn't go right and you start reflecting and you think, oh, that, you know, that didn't really work, and then you start to make the connections with the people and the things that you need to do and connecting with your land. And then you finally you end up with respect for it. It's like, oh, well, that just took medicine. Yeah. We turn it around the other way and actually start from that point of view that, you know, I'm going to respect nature. This is a force that's way more powerful than me as you go through, as your country does, there's, there's, terrible droughts and fires and snowstorms and all those sorts of things that can happen. These are, you know, forces that are way more powerful and, and those sort of natural processes that have been going on for a millennia and I'm going to come in and change it in a couple of weeks. When you start from a respectful position, and I think this is what really helped us get through the drought, and then work towards being directed that, you know, that your direction comes from all those other things, then you're much more likely to have success that isn't only success for you, it's success for everybody, that everyone's included and that, um, you know, everything's in relation to everything else, you know, something always happens because of something else or, you know, that these things, you know, as we know in our farming systems, everything's interrelated and, and you can't just change one thing with that on on something else um yeah so and then he sort of changes that to a little bit to um to be thinking about it as the respect being your spirit you know the things that come from your gut your gut feeling and your spirit um and you, your values the connection is your heart all the things that are connected are from your your heart and it's about relationships and you know, establishing equal relationships. Um, and then the reflecting is about your head and um, establishing that shared body of knowledge, you know, that's something that we can all share together, which is, you know, the, the wonderful world of what we're doing now. Yeah. And then direct is the work of your hands. You know, you've got to go through that process before your hands can do the work. Otherwise, you know, you're just not going to have success or it's going to be harmful and and in following that you know we have a way of getting through sustainably or regeneratively um yeah so that's something that's just that i've just come across just recently and and i yeah yeah i can really connect to that and that's that's a thought process that you know i've been working on in 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 some way and now i have some understanding around that and you know how that that can impact what we do yeah, so. yeah, I I love 
books like that that make you think um, that that aren't necessarily farming based books, but they they still encourage you to have a, a really um, honed in perspective as a farmer. So I value those kind of books um, and those voices so very much. So I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm definitely going to link to that in the show notes so everybody else can find that one too. So it's a great read. It's, it's, it's quite an Australian context, but would be totally relevant in, um, yeah. in the world. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure it will be. I can't wait to read it and um, add it to my my giant stack of uh, <laughs> books to read this winter here. All I do in the winter is read, 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 and then in the summer, farm, farm, farm. <laughs> so, uh, guys, this has been so much fun. I feel like I have new friends um, halfway across the world. I wish I could just transport myself there <laughs> to your flowers right now. I'm so grateful you spent all this time um, chatting with me and I value your perspective so very much, particularly the more philosophical side of things. Um, that's the kind of conversation I was really hoping we would have. And I really appreciate that you, that you put your hearts out there for me. So thank you for that. Um, and, um, I'll, I'll bid you farewell for now, but I hope that our, our paths cross again in the future. So thank you, Brenda and Andrew. Good luck with the rest of your season over there. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for having us and, and it's been great to chat with you and and I just hope this new year is going to be full of lots of good things for you. <laughs> and uh, Yeah, and you as well over there. So we'll just have to keep, keep each other posted for sure. <laughs> Today's episode of No-Till Flowers was produced by Ginny Love of Love and Fresh Flowers with support from No-Till Growers. Special thank you to Nikolai Fox for the theme music, at Nikolai Fox on Instagram. Thank you to the Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash growers for making this show possible. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you are getting it and leave a review. That always helps us out. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode of No-Till Flowers.